Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Forestine, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, sheltering in place in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, April 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. In the past 24 hours, we learned there might finally be a drug to treat patients with COVID-19. We'll break down new clinical trial data on remdesivir. That's the closely watched antiviral drug from Gilead Sciences. Then former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb will call in to talk about his ideas for how we fight the virus and reopen the economy. But before we get into this week's podcast, Rebecca, Adam, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. Yeah, that's right, Damien. You know, at the risk of sounding too self-promotional, a Stat Plus subscription gives exclusive access to news analysis that often moves biopharma stocks. We bring you profiles of the personalities and the power brokers that are shaping the industry. So if you're interested in subscribing, you can do that today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, you can enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year by using the code POD. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. This week brought what might be the first substantial good news in the effort to develop new medicines to treat COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. That was Tony Fauci talking about the results of a large government-run clinical trial on remdesivir. That's an experimental antiviral drug from Gilead Sciences. So Adam and our stat colleague, Matt Herper, have been reporting on remdesivir for weeks now, including breaking news from this government study announced on Wednesday. So Adam, why are these study results so important? The reason that these study results are so meaningful and important is that this was a large study, about 1,000 patients, and it was conducted by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. That's the arm of the NIH that's run by Tony Fauci. And this was a placebo-controlled, blinded study. So it was really a very rigorous trial design. And from that rigorous study, we found that remdesivir, you know, really kind of the the first successful clinical trial of the drug to treat people with COVID-19. Remdesivir showed a faster time to recovery than placebo. Explain what that means. Yeah, right. So the study enrolled patients with moderate to severe COVID-19. These are patients that are treated in the hospital. And it used essentially like an eight-point rating scale to assess recovery. And so what the data showed, and these are still preliminary, was that the time to recovery was 11 days for the patients on remdesivir compared to 15 days for placebo. And from a statistical perspective, that was a 31% decrease or an acceleration in the time to recovery. And the mortality rate for the remdesivir group here was 8%. That was compared to almost 12% for the placebo group, you know, that was not statistically significant, but was trending in the right direction. So on the same day as the government-run study of remdesivir data was released, we also heard about results from two other clinical trials with more mixed results. So what happened here? Yeah, and this is where the story gets a little bit complicated, you know, because there's been multiple clinical trials that have been conducted on remdesivir, and they've all seemed to report out at the same time. Also on Wednesday, we got results from a study that was conducted in China of severe COVID-19 patients. Now, this study was negative, so there was really no difference between remdesivir and a standard of care in terms of time to 
recovery, although there was a trend favoring remdesivir in that study. And then Gilead conducted its own study in severe COVID-19 patients. This study was kind of controversial because there's no control arm. So all the patients received remdesivir. They were basically randomized to between five days of treatment or 10 days of treatment. And essentially what the study found was that there was a similar time to clinical improvement. So basically saying that five days of treatment was just as good as 10 days. So looking at these data overall, what's the verdict on remdesivir? The data here show that this is an effective drug. You know, it's a start. This is not a cure. This is not going to help every patient with COVID-19. This is a drug that is given intravenously, has to be administered in the hospital. But I think what's important here is that, you know, this is the first time that we've seen a large, very rigorously designed clinical trial that showed a benefit for a medicine to treat COVID-19. And that's, like I said, that's a start. And so we're going to probably see moving forward is that this drug will be used. There'll be other drugs that'll be layered on top. You know, ultimately there may be drugs that will be better for patients and that will replace remdesivir. But, you know, we sort of have to start somewhere. And I think that's what we saw this week with remdesivir. So what happens next with Gilead's drug now that we have the data from these studies? Well, from what we've seen reports is that the FDA is considering basically granting an emergency use authorization for remdesivir. And I imagine that's going to happen in the next day or so. And then there's more studies that need to be done. And Gilead is going to have to make a lot of remdesivir. And then following that, there's going to be talk about access and how ultimately how patients are going to get this drug and questions about pricing. And Gilead is having an earnings call later this week. Uh, They're going to obviously be talking a lot about that. So I think some of those questions will be answered in the coming days. The coronavirus pandemic has made household names out of the government officials who seem to be on our TVs day and night. But one former federal employee has emerged as a reliable and in-demand source of information, both as the U.S. prepared for the outbreak and now as the country considers how best to reopen. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is the former commissioner of the FDA, and he's a current fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He joins us now from his home in Connecticut. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, earlier this week, you were part of a bipartisan group that wrote a letter to Congress, essentially laying out a plan to get America back to work. The plan focused heavily on massive increases in testing and contact tracing, but also recommended using vacant hotels to isolate people infected with the virus and paying citizens to self-isolate when sick. What's been the reaction to that proposal in the week since it went public? I think there's some recognition that we're going to need to invest more in case-based interventions. Right now, we're doing population-based mitigation, where we're basically isolating entire populations. As we reduce the number of cases, what you want to be doing is focusing resources on just trying to isolate the individuals with the infection. But we need to make sure that it's not punitive, where you are forced to isolate, you miss work, you miss your salary. So I think we need to provide resources to individuals and also more resources to do just the blocking and tackling of public health work, contact tracing. This is the bread and butter of public health work. We do this all the time in measles outbreaks or with outbreaks of multidrug resistant tuberculosis. I will say there is some controversy about doing it in the context of coronavirus. But I think if we're going to you know, mitigate the risk of epidemics going forward, we're going to have to invest in these kinds of tools. So on the topic of contact tracing, we've seen some states, including Massachusetts and New York, begin to hire and and train people to do that work. 
How many people nationwide do you think will be necessary to make contact tracing effective in the U.S.? Well, we talked about well over 100,000 in a letter that we sent to Congress. There's different estimates. There's estimates by the experts at Johns Hopkins of around 100,000. Some of the high-end estimates are a quarter of a million. I think it's going to take tens of thousands. I think the 100,000 estimate from Johns Hopkins is probably a reasonable base case. Remember, we're talking about 50 states, and some of those states are very populous. So the idea of New York or Massachusetts or a state like Florida or Texas hiring several thousand people or California hiring more than that isn't that big of a number. You can get there very quickly. CDC's bringing on at least close to a thousand individuals right now, and they may be tapping AmeriCorps to bring on some additional um, people in a very near term. So there's going to be an effort to step up the capacity to do this both on a state level as well as a national level with CDC. So Scott, I listened to your interview on the Ezra Klein show from a few weeks ago. And during that interview, you said you opposed a strategy reliant on uh, contact tracing technology that would involve asking Americans to download a smart app that would then be used to notify people who'd been exposed to someone who tested positive for the virus. Could you explain why you don't think that's a good idea? As a practical matter, I think it could be helpful, especially if you're using a pipeline like the one that Google and Apple built, where you truly are able to allow people to understand if they've been in proximity to the virus in a truly de-identified fashion, where that backbone that Apple and Google built allows app developers to create software that doesn't identify people's location or even who they may be in contact with, just that they were in proximity to the virus. I think the challenge is that there is a lot of people who have deep privacy concerns around this. And even when we take time to explain what it is and what it isn't, and the fact that it can be done in a de-identified fashion, I don't think those concerns easily go away. And so if we venture into trying to deploy these tools in a broad way, and we make them mandatory in any fashion, I think it's going to put at risk the overall enterprise. And I think we need to calculate very carefully what we have to do what we want to do and what we can live without because we know that it it's going to create political tension and privacy concerns and perhaps cause people to pull away from the overall effort. I'm surprised about the level of pushback that I'm seeing at a political level um, by some groups to the whole notion of contact tracing, even just you know, the contact tracing that you would have public health workers going out and interviewing people and trying to track down those individuals they may have been in in close contact with who you want to offer testing to. That is just the basic level of public health work. And if we can't get a consensus around that, it's going to be a challenging fall. So, you know, on that note, I mean, do you see sort of partisan politics creeping into this debate? And are you worried about that? I don't think it's partisan politics insofar as there's a Republican and Democratic divide around this issue. I do think that there are people on the libertarian right who are particularly concerned about these privacy issues. But that also transcends political boundaries. There's people on the liberal spectrum as well who harbor the same concerns around government and surveillance. And so I think we need to be very careful what we do, careful how we talk about these things, and you know, very careful to explain them fully so people understand what they are and what they're not and can make judgments about them. So your proposal to Congress comes as some states in the country are already beginning to allow businesses to reopen and are loosening restrictions on people staying in their homes. How would you advise governors on on how to approach this situation? I stick to what I said at the outset, which is that I think you need to see a sustained reduction in new cases 
and then wait a period of time, an incubation cycle, before you consider really reopening on a broad scale. I think there are things you can do in the interim where you might be able to restore certain quality of life measures or reopen some more essential businesses in a limited fashion. So things that are done primarily or entirely outdoors, you may be able to reopen parks, you may may allow for religious services to be held outside. We know things that are held outside are probably lower risk than crowding people into indoor settings. So there's things you can do in a gradual fashion. And remember, there's also states that made decisions to shut down certain things at the outset while other states didn't. So for example, in Michigan, they shut down things like lawn care services or construction activities that are done entirely outside. Whereas in my home state of Connecticut, some of those services were open from the beginning and haven't shut down. So, you know, Michigan can take a decision to just conform themselves to a state like Connecticut with respect to certain things, and that would constitute reopening parts of their economy. But in fact, it'd be a very gradual step, and and it wouldn't be out of bounds of what other states have done from the outset and seem to have been able to do safely. So I think the, the broader reopening in terms of, you know, putting people back in offices, back in factories and shop floors, you really want to see a sustained reduction in new cases. And, and just to give sort of a snapshot, there's about 25 states where the cases are still going up and new, the, the daily cases are still increasing. Um, there's about six or seven where you're seeing really clear declines that are consistent with what the White House set out as the guidelines for reopening. And then in the other states, you're seeing sort of a plateau or maybe a gradual decline over a short period of time. But, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. We're still very much in this epidemic. And while we've plateaued nationally, we haven't seen the sustained declines in new cases or in deaths that we would want to see um, to give us confidence that we've turned the corner. So let's pivot to medicines being developed to try to treat COVID-19. And we'll start, of course, with remdesivir. How important is this drug and where does it fall short? It appears to be active. It appears to be weakly active. Um, I don't think the drug's going to be a home run, but I think that the drug, given its antiviral activity that we saw in the trial from the NIH, as well as the other evidence that we have now, I think the drug could probably be effective for certain patients when used appropriately. And it seems that the setting in which the drug might deliver the most benefit is when it's used early in the course of infection, particularly in people who have risk factors that predict that they're more likely to have a bad outcome. And I would expect that this drug will get authorized under an EUA by the Food and Drug Administration under an emergency use authorization. And that EUA could set out some parameters on where the drug is most appropriately used and define you know that, that kind of a patient category. But it's a first-generation antiviral, and I can't think of, of an antiviral. I was trying to do this the other day. A first-generation antiviral that was a home run. Every virus that we've been able to drug effectively, hepatitis C, HIV, all the diseases that we've been able to drug that are viruses, if you think back to the first generation drugs, they weren't wildly effective. And I think the same thing's going to play out here. The first generation drugs are going to be drugs that are being repurposed for this task. They're going to be suboptimal unless we get really lucky. And it's going to take time before you see drugs come onto the market that are tailored to the coronavirus that are going to be more effective. Now, I I happen to believe that the timeline for getting those second and third generation drugs onto the market is going to be greatly accelerated because we've gotten better at drug development. We've gotten better at drugging viruses. And we have so much focus from the biopharmaceutical industry on this target. 
But, you know, it's going to take time. And I think we need to be accepting that the first generation drugs aren't going to be home runs and remdesivir falls in that category. Now, combined with perhaps an antibody drug, which we may be able to get on the market by the fall, that could be a pretty robust toolbox. That could be a nice medicine cabinet that could reduce the risk for a lot of patients. So you mentioned antibodies. You know, what other technologies, what other platforms do you think will be most effective against treating COVID-19, you know, beyond antivirals? Well, I think there's going to be drugs that come onto the market or get validated, some of the existing drugs that can help treat the conditions that coronavirus causes. So you see some of the work with the IL-6 drugs, which obviously has been some incrementally disappointing information in recent days, the work that's being done with JAK inhibitors, interferon. I think there's going to be drugs that help support patients and help treat some of the the inflammatory response that COVID triggers that creates a lot of the uh, bad outcomes, a lot of the risk for certain patients, particularly what we've identified as a cytokine storm. I think that doctors are learning better how to treat some of the other risks that COVID creates, like the hypercoagulable state. This virus does appear to activate platelets. Now doctors are anticoagulating patients when they're first admitted. They're looking much more carefully for pulmonary emboli, doing PE studies and echocardiograms to look for right heart strain patients. We weren't doing that initially. We're doing that now. So we're learning how to treat patients better. And I think that's going to, over time, improve outcomes. And, you know, eventually we're going to see more literature published of the collected clinical experience with patients in the United States that's going to help educate physicians and give more insight into what's working and what's not. So, Scott, you wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last weekend that talked about the global race to develop a coronavirus vaccine in sort of nationalistic terms. You wrote, the first nation to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 could have an economic advantage as well as a tremendous public health achievement. And then you warned that America risks being second. So in that piece, you laid out a way that regulators could allow for the development of this vaccine as quickly as possible in the United States. But I was curious, you know, how do you do that at the same time as preventing something no one wants, which is the approval of a vaccine that turns out to not work or be unsafe? Well, I would challenge first the idea that it was a nationalistic term. You know, I think it's just a reality that we need to understand that the first vaccines that come onto the market, as much as countries say they're going to guarantee equitable distribution, the reality is very few nations, and I don't think any nation is going to have a supply initially that's going to provide for their own population as well as export in any sufficient quantities to provide for inoculation by other nations. I think that more likely what you're going to see is countries use their supply to inoculate their population and export what they can to some countries that are locked out of the vaccine race. And so I think we need to recognize that it's important that American manufacturers who are manufacturing product in the United States have a vaccine available for the United States that we can use not only for us, but also to export to nations that we want to support who are going to be locked out of this race. And I don't think that's particularly nationalistic. I think it's realistic. And I framed it in those terms because I want people who aren't necessarily thinking about the vaccine per se, but thinking about the strategic security of the United States and thinking about the economic implications of of COVID-19 to also understand the importance of a vaccine and getting to a vaccine efficiently. And so I, I framed the argument a little bit differently than it's been portrayed and broadened it beyond just the public health dimension, which is obviously paramount, to also talk about that economic dimension, because it's real. And I think we should just be honest about what the implications are here. Now, in terms of moving efficiently, I think there's a lot of ways that you can make the process more efficient by trying to do more things in parallel and use animal studies more effectively. We also can think about ways to design protocols that can 
accelerate getting an answer about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. But make no mistake, this vaccine is going to have to be put in tens of thousands of patients in clinical trials before you can have an assurance of its safety and be in a position to provide it on a broad basis and certainly be in a position to license it. Most of the platforms, not all of them, but most of them are very novel platforms where there's less experience and we have less safety information overall. And so you're going to want to be very sure that these vaccines aren't just effective, but are very safe if you're going to use them to mass inoculate a population. Because if you get it wrong and there's some latent side effect associated with one of these vaccines, you have the potential for a lot of harm because it's going to be used so widely. So Scott, you've become a highly visible and and widely respected voice in all things COVID-19, maybe not as ubiquitous as Tony Fauci, but close. And you've somehow managed to straddle the line between government insider and outside critic. How did you find yourself playing that role? Well, again, I would probably challenge your your construct as a government insider and outside critic. Look, I've been plain-spoken Uh, since I was at FDA and probably long before then um, in terms of what I did on op-ed pages and some of the work I did with Congress and the testimony that I used to deliver. And I've been that way um, since leaving the government. And I think some people appreciate that. Probably there's some people who don't, but I've been you know, fortunate to continue to have access to folks in the White House. A lot of people I've worked very closely with who I trust and who trust me are still in those positions. And I've been able to deliver candid advice both publicly and privately. And and the reality is, you know, what I say privately is what I say publicly. And that's why I publish so many papers and articles, because when I'm delivering advice privately to people, I'm very upfront with them that I'm going to, you know, deliver the same content and the same ideas publicly so that, uh, you know, people know exactly what I'm saying and nobody's surprised by any of the positions that I'm taking. So, Scott, you now sit on the board of Pfizer. So from that perspective, what advice are you giving Pfizer or even other pharma biotech companies about commercializing drugs or vaccines against the coronavirus? As you know, there's a lot of distrust out there. Uh, Despite statements to the contrary, a lot of Americans believe that pharma is going to profit from COVID-19. Well, the, the advice that I've given to date to Pfizer is the same advice I've given publicly, frankly, and the same advice I've given to CEOs of other large vaccine manufacturers who I've been on the phone with, which is I think we need to think about clinical trial constructs where you can um, do a clinical trial in the context of outbreaks in the fall. Issues around pricing, even if they had come up, I wouldn't uh, discuss it, um, but they haven't come up. I think it's way too early um, for those discussions. I'm a firm believer that the companies as a whole are going to be good corporate citizens here. They're going to recognize the public health imperative. I think a lot of the companies are making massive investments that are never going to be fully recouped, um, certainly not at a margin that is you know, sort of traditional biopharmaceutical margins. And I would expect the manufacturers to um, price things very appropriately in this context, recognizing the public health crisis that we're in. Having been on the other side of the table, I can tell you uh, there's a real earnestness about what companies are doing here, a real sense of mission uh, and a real sense of urgency. And you saw a lot of companies pivot very quickly into this who, that weren't even traditionally in these kinds of spaces, devote significant resources to trying to tackle this. And I'll just sort of close by saying, you know, we've we've invested for a very long time in a robust biopharmaceutical sector in this country, not just the for-profit sector, 
but also what we've done with NIH and what we've done in academic institutions, building out a very robust life science sector. And if it wasn't meant for a moment like this, I don't know what it was meant for. I mean, this is the opportunity, this is the time for that sector to deliver something for the nation and help us recoup all the investments that we've made over time. So last question for you. What does the day in the life of Scott Gottlieb look like? Walk us through a typical day for you and your family right now. The day starts early. I usually wake up around five. I usually do um, a hit on CNBC every morning at six or seven a.m. And then I'll get started with writing and phone calls. Um, And then I usually end my day with another hit on CNBC around seven p.m. on their closeout show and then a couple phone calls in the evening. One of the things I'm having less time to do than I've done traditionally and I've long enjoyed is just sitting down to write. Uh, There's so much going on and I'm on the phone with so many policymakers over the course of the day that I'm not finding the kind of time that I uh, used to be able to do to just sit down and think and write. But hopefully I'll get that back soon after we get through this. Well, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you're coping with the pandemic. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.